Good morning, everyone. It's because of the cross that we can be here today and we can open up our Bibles and read the Word and see its implications for our lives. Today, I'm talking about really some things that are often misunderstood. And what I hope is that God gives us all some insight into hope and holiness. Hope might be a bit easier for us, but we get, we get kind of tweaked on that one. But holiness is the one that people kind of want to run from. They think holiness, and they have all sorts of pictures in their minds. In fact, depending upon when you grew up and how old you are, you'll have different ideas of, of things that were pushed upon many Christians. And if you do this, or don't do that, if you wear this or don't wear that, if you eat this or don't eat that, if you drink this or don't drink that, you'll be holy. And then if you're under 20 years of age, you're like, holiness? I never hear about that. Because we just don't like to talk about holiness. Probably because some of the excesses, probably because some of the issues that have been attached to it. But what I want you to see today is that hope and holiness are both expected and enabled by God. That it is possible for you, if you're a Christian, to live a holy life as God intends. Not maybe the way that you were always taught holiness is, but what God says holiness is. I just read something from a friend of mine this week that um, you might relate to. Because I think sometimes we think of hope as wishful thinking and we think of holiness as a list of do this or don't do that and so sometimes when you think of it in those ways hope just kind of ebbs away it kind of wanes and and holiness seems very elusive very slippery so you might be able to relate to what my friend wrote he said this i'm having an extremely rough time lately but I hide it so well with my automated responses and forced smiles. My heart feels like it is literally tearing in half. Breathing is heavy and my soul is distraught. Lately, I don't fully trust people when they ask, how am I doing? I don't really trust that they really care. And sometimes I don't even believe when people say, I'm praying for you. Christianity today often looks like a display of people who have it all together. I just want to pause for a moment and say, one of my favorite things to do is to drive to church on a Sunday morning. Of course, I'm dressed nicely, more nicely than I dress the rest of the week. And I like to pull up to people who are in cars that are bright and shiny, with their bright and shiny clothes. And I love it when you, you look over and they're having an argument. I just love that. Because... It's real messy life. And you, you know what? They got all dressed up. They're going to what? I don't know where they're going, but I guess, sure, that's where I think they're going to. And, and the thing is, is that oftentimes we get all dressed up and, because we want to go make people think good things about us. And we might have the argument in the car, but when we get and hit the ground here, we hit the ground running and we put the smile on our face. We, we look good. We look the part. And we are afraid to be messy with each other. We treat the church less like a family. Now, my friend goes on. 
Christianity today often looks like a display of people who have it all together. And to both the church and the outside world, it becomes daunting. The pressure to maintain the impossible perfect image is overwhelming. While in reality, the church is made up of messy people with messy lives. Then he says, I fully admit that sometimes I use social media to make my life look perfect. But inside there are days I feel like I'm wasting away. I don't want to be fake. I want to be authentic. I don't have it all together. I am broken. I fail miserably every day. Maybe you can relate. But no matter the depths of the heartache, my spirit cries out, even still, God, you are good. I don't know how, but it always does. God is the only reality I know to be constant and true. There is nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, that could ever convince me to say or believe otherwise. And then he ends, God, you are good. I give it all to you, God, and trusting that you'll make something beautiful out of me. You might be able to relate. If you're a believer today, which means that you've placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, he died for your sins, he was buried, he rose from the dead, you believe in the Lord Jesus, you, you have been forgiven of your sins, then even though you might struggle mightily and feel like your spiritual life sometimes is falling apart, going backwards rather than forwards, I want you to know that God is bigger than your failures and He is more interested and engaged in the process of your holiness than you are. He's very interested in your holiness, more than you could ever know. So today I want you to see something. I want you to take your Bibles and look at 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. And I want you to see that if you're a Christian, hope and holiness, while often missed, often misunderstood, are things that are positionally assured to a Christian and practically expected and enabled. They are possible and actually essential, indispensable for every believer in Christ. It is our practice to stand for the reading of God's word, so I invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. By the way, if you're memorizing 1 Peter with me, I have memorized all the way to verse 16. Sometimes I think that my version is a, a hybrid of the ESV and the NASB versions, but it works for me, and um, I hope that you stick with it because I know for me it's been an encouraging and edifying a building experience to continually go over these verses in my mind and to actually memorize things as a 51-year-old, 50, to memorize the Bible. And uh, I, I must admit, I have kind of had fallen out of the practice of that. Most of what I had memorized in recent years came from just reading the Bible. And I haven't uh, particularly been intent on memorizing a portion. So I'm trying to, re to memorize all of 1 Peter. It seems impossible right now, but I've got 16 verses so far. So praise God. Okay. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And Lord God, thank you for your word. 
May it be true in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So the idea today is that hope and holiness is possible and it's expected by God for every true believer. Put another way, every true follower of Jesus is called to respond to the free gift of salvation that they have received by living lives marked by hope and holiness, that they would honor God in their thoughts and their words and their actions. So I want you to see that while it's sometimes hard to see God at work, hope-inspired holiness, that's how I'm going to put it, hope-inspired holiness is a real possibility and something that God intends for you. The question I want to ask is, though, how do you cultivate a holy life? And I think that's what Peter is getting at in this passage. What's necessary to cultivate a life of holiness? How can you be holy as God is holy? What characterizes a hope-inspired holy life? I'm going to point out five things in this passage that I believe point to what characterizes and drives this holiness. But I want you to know these are not in any specific order except what I see them coming out in the text. Okay, so it's a flow of five things. I don't believe there to be chronological or a list where you check off and go, ah, got that one, now I'm holy. Okay, I think that they're things that, that the Holy Spirit wants to be present at the same time in our lives. I want to point out, before we dive into those five things, I want to point out the first word of verse 13. It's the word, therefore. I love this word in the Bible because what it does is it takes what has come before and builds off that as really as a springboard onto another thought. But what I want you to see here is that in verses 1 through 12, Peter has been talking all about salvation. It's all about how God has chosen believers and foreknew them and sanctifying them in the Spirit so that they would obey Jesus and that He is multiplying grace and peace to believers and He has caused them to be born again to a living hope. And it is in that salvation that we are rejoicing in loving God and believing in Jesus and we have this this hope for the future. But Peter has been focusing so intently in the first 12 verses on these indicatives. All the verbs in the first 12 verses are about salvation are indicatives. It's stating what is true already. And so it's very clear at the first 12 verses, you might even go, wow, this is, man, he is really heavily God-centered in his view of salvation. Yes, he is. And he's saying, God does this, and, and we receive it, and we're joyful. But then you get to verse 13. And the verbs become imperatives, not indicatives. So it's not stating what is, but they're stating the response to God, the commands that God is saying, here's how you should live in light of this salvation that you have received. So the rest of the book of 1 Peter, the rest of the letter, it's all about how we should respond to the salvation that is outlined in the first 12 verses. I want you to see that it's a very dramatic shift. I've said before that, you know, we've, we've driven a lot cross-country going to see relatives. And as you drive across the United States from California to the East Coast, what you'll notice is some dramatic shifts in geography. You'll be going through the desert 
and you're driving for hours upon hours in the desert. It's dry, it's barren. And the next thing you know, you start seeing prairie. And it's like, when did that shift? When did it change? And all of a sudden, it's a, you're in a different geography. And then, all of a sudden, you get around, I don't know, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and things get green. It's really weird. Everything's brown, and then it gets green. And you're like, where did that come from? And then you start seeing mountains. And it's a very stark contrast. This is a very stark contrast. Indicatives all the way through verse 12, stating what is regarding salvation. You're chosen. You're foreknown. You're caused to be born again. You're reconciled by the death of Christ. And then in verse 13, therefore, based on all this, now we come, the imperatives, commands. And so the things I'm going to share with you today, these five things that I see, I'm hoping to get to all five. First hour, I got to the first three. But I'm planning to get to five. And um, I just want to say that these imperatives are things we should do. They're commands. Don't get this confused. Okay? We've, we've been talking indicatives. Here's how things are. Here's what God has done. Now Peter is saying through the, by the Holy Spirit... Here's what you need to get to work and do this, okay? So, first characteristic I want you to see is, when we see it in verse 13, readiness. Readiness as a believer. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Another way to put that is, gird up the loins of your minds. And that's a, a very visual picture in those days. The idea was you'd be wearing a long flowing robe. Even the men would wear these long flowing robes. And if you want to run any distance or do any maybe hard manual labor, you would need to gather up the robes and tuck them into your belt so that you wouldn't trip over the robes. The idea is if you want to get ready to run or you want to get ready to work, you must gird up, gather up these robes and tuck them in so that they're not going to hinder you as you run. It's the idea of having freedom as you work, as you go. Reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, which says that we should uh, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The idea here is really kind of like a runner at the starting blocks. And imagine you've gone to the Olympics and you're watching the final of the 400 and there's all these world-class runners and they're all getting ready at the starting line. Most of them have stripped down to the basic necessities of clothing. They've got, you know, $200 shoes on that are light as a feather and they are, they're putting their fingers on the the edge of the starting line. They're putting their feet in the blocks. They're getting all precisely ready. And everything in their life has come down to this moment. And they're ready. They're, they're waiting for the gun to go off. But then all of a sudden you hear, hey, hey, wait, wait, everybody, hold on a second. And there's a runner, but he's just wearing like a, a, a full suit. And he's got a pack of potato chips in his hand, munching on them. And he's got like a 52-ounce soda that he's slurping on. And he's like, hold on, hold on. I just, I just woke up. Can you wait for, can you give me a minute? And he kind of just like stands there. And Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Now here, 
Peter is saying, prepare your minds for action. That means get ready for the race or get ready to work. You're not messing around. You're not haphazard. You're not sloppy about it. You are focused. Prepare your mind for action. It has to do with your mind. Don't think that as a Christian you check your mind at the door. We're talking about a rational faith here that's based on truth. And God has given us his word in a world of words. And he has put it together in ways we can understand. And it's been translated into our language. And by the way, this book is not like any other book. Well, it's got pages and it's made out of ink and mine has calfskin cover, but it is not the same as any other book. It is, it is the truth of God that he has put in this form for us to receive. And he says to us, prepare your minds for action. Be ready. But then he says, be sober-minded. So your mind is prepared for action, but then it says be sober-minded. That means don't be intoxicated, don't be drunk. Well, not like with intoxicating fluids, but intoxicating influences. The idea is that you don't want to be intoxicated with the things of the world and therefore not have your mind ready for following Christ and doing what pleases God. Readiness. Be sober, not intoxicated with the world. There's an internal component. There is an external component. Some of you like to have guests over to your house and you like to be hospitable and you bring them over. Well, some of you also like to have guests over into your mind and into your life and into your actions. And some of those guests need to be kicked out for bad behavior. You don't just let anything into your mind. You don't let anything just be a part of your life as a believer. Preparing your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. And then those first two things lead to a third. He says, again in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is the return of Christ. It's one of Peter's favorite um, phrases. But here he's saying, fix your hope not on the second return of Christ, but fix your hope on the grace that is going to be brought to you. Did you notice that? It's about the grace, the grace of God that you're going to receive. It says fix your hope. You know what hope isn't? Hope isn't wishful thinking. Well, I hope it works out. I hope Jesus comes back and I'm not really sure. It's kind of like I hope my team wins today kind of a thing. No, that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is I know that I can trust God because he has proven himself trustworthy because he is trustworthy. Hope is faith in the future. Hope and faith are very much linked, but it is faith in the future. You are believing. You are confident. You are assured that God will do what he says he will do. It's this idea. And you're fixing your hope on grace. Now that should cause a lot of humility to come out in our lives. That we know that we would never deserve the grace that we've received. We never deserve the forgiveness that we receive in Christ. We never deserve the indwelling Holy Spirit and the blessings of salvation and peace and love and joy and what all that God has given us and we will not deserve the, the glorification that we 
shall receive. We will not deserve heaven. What Peter is saying is that we need to resolve ahead of time that we are going to get in the, in the race, get in the battle. We're going to become the person. We're not just going to say we are the person who follows Jesus. It's kind of like Daniel. I think of Daniel in this regard. In Daniel chapter 1, he, they are taken from their home country. They are taken to a pagan land. They are going to be trained by pagan leaders. And they are, they're, they're God honoring names are taken away from them and they give them names that are blasphemous uh, towards false gods, devoted to false gods. And it tells us in Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself with the food that was going to be offered to him. Interestingly, he had already been defiled in the sight of the captain of the eunuchs who had given them these, these names, he and his three friends. But guess who he went to to ask that he would not defile himself with the food. The very man who gave him the blasphemous name. And what did he do? He said, look, would you please allow me not to defile myself with this food? And God gave him favor in the sight of the captain of the eunuchs. The guy's like, I'm just doing my job, but I will, I will watch you and I will see, but I will grant you that request. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. The question for you today is, how ready are you for the battle? Are, are, did, you, did you even realize you were in one? Did you realize you were at the starting point of a race when you came to faith in Christ and every day that you wake up? A good question is, did I count the cost of following Jesus before I, I decided to follow Jesus? Before I said, hey, I want to I believe in the Lord Jesus. I want salvation. I want forgiveness. Did you count the cost? what that will cost you. One writer said that true holiness is the most beautiful ornament and the most magnificent beauty which can be found in man. Peter is pointing to this and saying, you be ready, be resolved to act, prepared, focused, like a runner at the, at the starting line, intense. That's part of holiness. You've got to be ready. Some people are still in bed. Still snoozing, hitting the snooze button in their, in their Christian life when God's saying the race is already in the, it, we're in the middle of the race already. Well, the first thing is readiness. The second thing I want you to see, characteristic of hope-inspired holiness, is ongoing repentance. Ongoing repentance, that you would take sin seriously. Verse 14 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, the idea is not, hey, you should be really obedient to God, though you should be. It's the idea that you are belonging to God. Obedient children is basically a synonym for believer, Christian, follower of Christ. The, the opposite of that is children of disobedience. Literally, this reads children of obedience, that obedience is the mother and children are following in obedience. The idea is that you belong to God. And what, God, what he is saying here is, you should take sin seriously. One of the things that is an observation that people make about American Christians is that we don't take suffering seriously. We don't understand suffering. But another observation is that we don't take sin seriously. We play with sin. We, we 
We play around with sin and we're not, we're not serious about resisting it. In fact, go with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is a similar wording that you find here. He says, you know, what Peter says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Your former ignorance is when you were an unbeliever. The lusts and the passions of your desires that you had uh, no way to stop those. Now you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. You have a way to say no to sin. The indwelling Holy Spirit. He's saying, but don't be conformed. And, and Romans 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. We like to think of that as don't let the world push you into its mold, as one paraphrase would say. But you also have to see it this way. Don't push yourself into the mold of the world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. The idea is, don't be like you used to be. You have a new identity in Christ. You're, you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You should be thinking differently. You should be acting differently. But we don't take sin seriously. A lot of times we'll say, well, that's just human nature. We like to say, well, no one's perfect. Or we'll say, well, he's just like that. Or she talks like that. We excuse sin. It's like we're afraid to face it ourselves or to deal with it appropriately with others. But what God is saying is, if you want to be holy, there must be an ongoing repentance going on in your life that you are confessing your sins and you're turning back to Jesus all the time. And we are, this is an imperative that we are not to be conformed any longer to our old way of life. Now, I know that there are times that you might feel holy. You go, you know, I've been doing a lot of things right. Things are going well in my life, in my work, in my marriage, in my relationships. I feel kind of holy. And you kind of maybe startle yourself and you're like, ooh, man, I'm, 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 I, guess I'm, I guess I'm holy. And all I would say is when you feel holy, you probably aren't. You're probably just prideful. Humble and holy go together. Andrew Murray said, there's no pride so dangerous, none so subtle and insidious as the pride of holiness. I would inject false in before holiness as the pride of false holiness. A lot of times when we deal with sin, we're just sorry we got caught. But true repentance is not sorry you got caught, but sorry you grieved a holy God. Go over to 1 Corinthians. And um, you, you, I want you to see something in 1 Corinthians about about repentance first corinthians chapter six chapter five paul has dealt with sexual immorality in the church that had defiled the church and he's like you know the pagans are you know they can't believe you're you're doing you're allowing this and you've got to take care of this because of what jesus did on the cross and then he says in verse nine of chapter six do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this in verse 11. And such were some of you. You used to be like this. Some of you who become believers, 
these sins would have characterized your life before coming to Christ. But he says, but you were washed. They were forgiven of their sins. They were washed by the blood of Christ. You were sanctified. So you, you were made holy. And it's written as if it's already a fact. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he's saying you were different. So when Peter says, don't be conformed any longer to your former ways, you know, what's he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is, is the Romans 7 stuff. I know we all like to get to Romans 8. I do too, okay? But we got to live in Romans 7 as well because Romans 7, when you get to Romans 8, it's not like, okay, forget about Romans 7. That's, that's not there anymore. No, no, it's there at the same time as Romans 8 is. And Romans 7, Paul says, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. I do the very thing I don't want to do. I, 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 I'm messed up by this. What, what can I do here? What Peter is saying is, you separate yourself from the influences of your former way of life. 2 Corinthians 7. He says, Since we have these promises in Christ, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement, what contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I would not be disqualified. But we don't like to say no to ourselves. We have been taught, many of us, even in the Christian community, that our appetites and our desires are king. And that whatever we want, we deserve. So we go about our whole life gratifying our desires and not saying no to ourselves. Jesus said, if you want to follow after me, you must deny yourself. Repudiate yourself. Say no to yourself. It's the whole idea of being in the world, but not of it. It's interesting that going back to Daniel's example, he created an ally in the world by not going along with the world. He went to the chief of the eunuchs who had given him the blasphemous name and said, would you please help me not defile myself? That seems crazy, doesn't it? And the guy says, okay, I'll go along with that. I think sometimes we think that we must create allies with the world by going along with the world. You know, the whole idea of, oh, Christians can do this or that, excusing sinful choices under the cloak of trying to reach people for Christ. Now, Paul said, I become all things to all men, that I might win some. But he didn't sin to do it. And that's like saying, hey, I'm going to try to get people to be UCLA fans by wearing USC clothing. Not going to happen. Doesn't work. You're going to go, well, no, you're, you're that. You're not that thing you say you are. So if you want to look like an unbeliever, they're not going to start going, wow, I really want Jesus. Winsome, yes. Indistinguishable, no. Different from, separate, holy. Not hiding, but showing them Jesus. That's what, that's what Peter's talking about here. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Be transformed. The question is, have you repented of your sins and come to faith in Christ? And, if the answer is yes, are you continually repenting of your sins as you're aware of them? So we must have ongoing repentance if we're going to be holy. A third characteristic is probably the toughest one for us. But if you don't do this, you're not really interested in holiness. 
take responsibility. Take responsibility. I think one of the problems, and Jerry Bridges brought this out in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, one of the problems we have, a pro- why we have a problem with holiness is because we don't realize our responsibility for our holiness. People will say, no, 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 it's all God's work. No, that, that's salvation. That's, that's justification. But sanctification, that's God's work and yours. That's God's work and yours. Now, let me explain. We all know we have a desire for holiness that is supernatural from God. Romans seven eighteen says that. The wishing is present within me. But we have to take our responsibility for our own holiness seriously. Don't be conformed to the former sinful way of life. That's the idea of resisting conformity with sin. That's not you being a puppet with mar- or marionette strings hanging from the thing and God just orchestrating you. That's you making real, tough, everyday choices. We're reluctant, though. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us, pursue godliness and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It doesn't say attain godliness. It doesn't say attain holiness. Like, ooh, I got it. You know, capture the flag. I've got, I've got holiness. Let's go. Let's go on to the next thing. No, this is something you're going to be pursuing your entire life. It's lifelong diligence and effort. Again, notice it's pursue, not get or attain. But we're confused. We say, but what, what part is mine and what part is God's? Look at verse 15. As he who called you is holy, as the holy one, God is called the holy one a lot in the Bible. As the holy one who called you, literally, you also be holy in all your behavior, all your conduct. If you're reading the King James, it says conversation. It doesn't just mean your words. It means your thoughts and your words and your actions, your way of life. Uh, conversation used to mean your way of life. Now it means us talking. So that's why uh, translators will now say in your conduct or in your behavior. So be holy as he is. So let's talk about God's holiness. God is holy. He is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his honor. That's how Wayne Grudem puts it. God is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his honor. He's holy. Jerry Bridges puts it this way. God's holiness is perfect freedom from all evil. The absolute absence of any evil in him. Now we know, and Paul says, I know that it's dwelling in me. I'm, I'm sinning when I, when I don't want to be sinning. Uh, I'm not trying to excuse it, but I've got this battle raging in my heart. So we here be holy. So we either misunderstand it or miss it completely. Maybe depending upon where or when we grew up or just our, our frame of reference, the way we think. Here's what holiness is not. Holiness is not looking good. Though you might look good when you're holy. But holiness is not looking good to other people. Holiness is godliness. Being like God. It's healthy believers who are humble and responsible and worshipful and repentant. But we lean towards thinking holiness is something to pursue so people will think better of us cultural holiness reputation oriented outwardly focused selfishly motivated so people will think good of us instead it should be something that we strive for so that God would be pleased and praised biblical holiness holiness is God like character it's being like Jesus so 
my friend who wrote the note that I read at the beginning is probably more holy than he knows. And when he feels holy, he's probably not. We mistakenly only go after the visible things that are outwardly focused rather than the eternal things that spring from the inside out. And then we measure ourselves by ourselves, by other people. We look around, oh, I'm better than them. Oh, I'm doing better than them. Oh, but God has not called you to be like those around you. God has not called you to measure yourself by other people in the body of Christ. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the, to the character of God. Conformity to the character of God. Sanctification. Holiness. It is this. It is a progressive, lifelong work of God and man. Don't leave yourself out of that. That frees you from sin and makes you more like Christ. Some of you are going to push against that in your head. You go, no, 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 it can't be. It's all God's work. No, the Bible says it's your work and God's. Now, justification is all God's work. It's the work of one. He saves us by grace. But we are also sanctified by grace too, but it is the work of one plus one. That's how I'll put it. One plus one. A holy God plus fallen, frail man who's being made holy. It's all by God's grace. And we can never take the place of God. But read Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. You can't have verse 13 without verse 12. You can't pick and choose. Oh, I just like verse 13. God's at work in me to will and do his good pleasure. I love that verse. But you know the one I don't love as much, but I have to believe, is verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't work for it. It was already paid for at the cross. But work it out with fear and trembling, reverence for God. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You strive for peace with everyone, Hebrews 12.14 again, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Very clear in Scripture. 1 Peter 1, 2. The sanctification of the Spirit. We know that God's Word sanctifies us. John 17, 17. Jesus prays to the Father. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. So you study the Word. You memorize the Word. You meditate on the Word. You think about it. You you think of its implications and applications to your life. And you discipline yourself for godliness. That's what 1 1 Timothy 4, 7 says. Discipline yourself for godliness. You probably heard of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards resolved never to do anything that he would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of his life. But he also made this statement. Resolved never to give over, not in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. I will never give up the fight against my own sin, however unsuccessful I may be. It's Proverbs 24.16. Though the righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. You take responsibility for your training. You don't quit. You continue the struggle. You committed. But an unbeliever is going to stumble with no power to overcome. The Spirit of God is not at work in him. If you have the Spirit of God, you've got to know that Romans 7 mirrors your struggle with sin. You want to get to Romans 8? You don't like the idea of Romans 7? 
because you want instant victory. God wants perseverance. What's our part and what God's part? That's, that's the question, right? What's my part and what's God's part in, self, in sanctification? 2 Timothy 2 talks about a teacher, an athlete, a soldier, and a farmer. And they're all working hard and taking responsibility seriously. So let's talk about a farmer. A farmer plows the field, plants the seed, waters it, fertilizes it, cultivates it. And all the while, he knows he is dependent upon forces outside of himself for those crops to grow. He can't make the seed germinate and sprout. He can't make sunshine come and rain come. He depends on God for those things. But he also knows if he doesn't plant the seed and do his part, nothing is going to happen in the field. That's a picture of your sanctification. You're basically in partnership with God. Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. The farmer can't do God's part. And God will not do the farmer's part. In sanctification, you can't do God's part. You can't be the Holy Spirit. You can't be the Word of God. But God is not going to do your part. So some, some Christians don't grow. It's not because the Holy Spirit is weak or because the Word of God is not strong. Robert Murray Machane said, The greatest need of my people is my own holiness. I probably would change that and say the greatest need of people is Jesus. But I think the greatest need of the church today is holiness. You need me to be holy, and I need you to be holy. I'm going to end right here. I can't give you the last two. I wish I could. The time is telling me no. The last two are really, really good. I'll have to figure this out. I don't know what to do, but let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you are holy. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take responsibility for our part in becoming like you. We, we know, let's say we wake up tomorrow morning and we say, I want to be holy. We know we have to trust the Holy Spirit. We know we need to get into your word. But we also know we need to make wise decisions in every aspect of life, in our thoughts, in our words, and our actions. And so, Lord, give us grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.